You are now listening to the Inner Circle Podcast Network. What's good, everybody? Buongiorno, buenos dias, ni hao, and konnichiwa, motherfuckers. Welcome to another episode of Avocado Cafe. Thank you very much for joining me. I am your host, Jason Almi, for this episode. Today, we're going to talk about Kimagure Orange Road, television episode number 11, entitled Don't Ring the Wedding Bell. This episode originally aired June 15th of 1987. It was directed by Morikawa Shigeru, whom you should remember as uh, Morikawa previously directed episode seven, Madoka's Private Life, which is an excellent episode in my opinion. It shows subtleties regarding Kasuga's insecurities regarding Ayukawa, as well as some of Ayukawa's feelings towards Kasuga and some nuance there and her and Ayukawa's feelings about the way she's perceived in general. So uh, episode seven was a masterpiece. We trust Morikawa today to deliver another fine episode. I have seen online this episode referred to as filler. I might have agreed uh, to that years ago, maybe decades ago. I might have agreed that this was kind of a filler episode. You don't need it. Honestly, if you want to consider anything that happens after the first couple of episodes, but before the last couple of episodes is filler, you can. It's 48 episodes and you don't need to watch them all to understand kind of how things start and how things end. But I think today what I'm going to try to to do here is to try to make a case for why this episode does have some importance in terms of the, the narrative, the overarching narrative, as well as artistic significance. This episode was written by Shizuya Isao. This is the first episode written by Shizuya. However, Shizuya will go on to write a few episodes and uh, several of the OVAs, actually. So most of the episodes that are written by Shizuya really rely heavily on ESP-driven plots. There are stories in this series that the ESP, I mean, gosh, Anohi, there's no ESP at all. Spoiler alert. But there are some episodes where it is more of a presence than others. And Shizuya's episodes do tend to be more reliant on the power as either 
something that's a requisite for um, allowing the plot to occur, moving the plot along, or a part of the conflict itself, um, like creating the conflict vis-a-vis the power. So uh, this episode, not so much, although there is some prominent power usage at the climax of this episode, and and we can consider that as possibly uh, Shazia's uh, sort of stamp on this episode, or 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 the mark that Shazia leaves on this episode. This is this is another episode where confusion occurs, and a lot of the conflict is based on the confusion that occurs after making erroneous presumptions about Ayukawa's sexual history and promiscuity, after mistakenly thinking Ayukawa was seeing an older man, after presuming that Shikata was dying in the last episode. Surely, Kasuga won't jump to conclusions again today. Surely, right? We can count on him to have learned his lesson. So we begin with a gloomy, rainy establishing shot, and uh, it caused me to think that really rain and overcast weather are typically quite rare in Orange Road episodes. Usually the uh, exterior colors are are, are very vibrant there. The, with the lighting, um, it indicates like a brightness, a sunshine. I mean, this is an endless summer type of show, even though the episodes occur throughout the year and, and all of the seasons are represented here. It's still one of those kind of, uh, I don't know, it's just a upbeat overall show. And part of that is communicated vis-a-vis the lighting and the color and all of these exteriors that we see constantly in these episodes, episodes like um, uh, the Kurumi-chan, I'll Teach You How to Date, where they're outdoors much of the time and they're seeking Kurumi and they're looking for her and they're looking in all of these different places. They eventually find her in a park. You've got all of these very vibrant colors. So it's not very frequent that we have this kind of rainy and overcast kind of gloomy weather. We do see a little bit of that in Anohi. You guys who have seen Anohi know what I'm talking about. And and I think part of the reason why this gloomy, rainy establishing shot was chosen, why they decided to animate it as this rainy, kind of dreary day, it's because Ayukawa is absent from school. Kasuga's noticing. He's feeling her absence. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. Kasuga's opening voiceover indicates that we're in media res, like in episode eight, Shutter Chance at the Beach, how that began with a little bit of a voiceover telling us that there was something going on. In Kasuga's flashback, we see him being actually pretty playful with Ayukawa here. He seems kind of comfortable with her. He's he's demonstrating that greater comfort and less insecurity about things in general with Ayukawa, uh, which is kind of a step for him, right? I mean, I don't feel like he was extremely comfortable with Ayukawa in the first several episodes. Uh, maybe when they went on their uh, boat rowing date, he was pretty comfortable with her then, and they were they were enjoying each other. But a lot of the time, he seems like he's harboring these insecurities that he's trying to hold back about what her past is like and her private life, et cetera. Here, he actually seems like he's doing. He's a good, he's in a good place. I mean, he's doing pretty good. He's even trying to joke with her a little bit, but she's not having it. Though she does say it has nothing to do with kids. And could this have been a slight jab at Kasuga? He's previously expressed his insecurity about being somewhat childish compared to her level of maturity. So uh, for his part, Kasuga responds pretty well. If that was a subtle jab, you know, he understands that she was maybe kidding with him a little bit. He lets it roll off. A side note, this is kind of reminiscent for me. I I love watching this scene because it's reminiscent of my wife and I, because I'll be joking and she's like not in the mood for it at all, whatever. She's just like, bro, I ain't having it. And I'm just like, whatever, try to let it roll off. But this this type of thing happens in the Almy household pretty frequently, unfortunately. Now, it's not until she receives that phone call at work that Kasuga begins to feel these 
old insecurities creeping back. This is just always going to be the case for Kasuga. He's always going to have these insecurities, and typically he's going to stay on top of them pretty well. Now that he knows Ayukawa a little bit better, he spent a little bit more time with her, but he's still going to have these old insecurities, and they are going to creep back at times like this. It's kind of understandable. I mean, it's a human trait. We all have our insecurities. Sometimes they have something to do with the person that we want to date. Cemented by this uh, palpable uptick in Ayukawa's mood. She becomes like much more peppy after the phone call. You know, she seemed kind of um, you know preoccupied mentally, and she just wasn't engaging with Kasuga or even her work really. And then after the phone call, she's rolling up her sleeves, smiling and ready to get back at it. And uh, Kasuga notices this stark contrast in her mood before and after the telephone call, and uh, that sticks in his craw a little bit. We go back to the classroom from this flashback. Kasuga's teacher is lecturing. And uh, importantly, his voice is being entered into the final audio mix. So we hear this lecture. It sounds, um, uh, his lines are in lower volume uh, than the voiceover. So his lines are a little bit more subtle. It, it, it has the effect of making it sound like he's at the front of the classroom and Kasuga's near the back. So uh, it, he wouldn't be as loud, of course, as Kasuga's voiceover. But then it also helps to subtly slide in this teacher's line. And I imagine that in the original Japanese, for the for the original uh, Japanese audience who would not have been watching this with subtitles like us Westerners, it may have been a more subtle thing. With the, the subtitles there, they actually become quite noticeable, this teacher's line. Now, the teacher's line is, she was not only the object of his love, but also a window into a wider world. This line is important. The filmmakers took the time to cast a voice actor, even if it was one of the other voice actors that was already playing a, a bigger part. They still pulled somebody in, said, can you sound like a teacher? And then recorded this line and then took this line, mixed it into the rest of the audio with the voiceover, with any background music or sound effects that are also occurring. There are several tracks here and they had to uh, select an audio track to put this line of dialogue into so that they could mix it in and make it present for the final audience. They wanted people to hear this teacher's line. They took the time to write it, record it, and mix it in. That means that there's significance here. And now this line summarizes what Ayukawa is to Kasuga in general, just for the, the whole series over the course of the entire show. This is what she means to him. And by wider world, the significance could be the social connections that Ayukawa exposes Kasuga to, like um, Master Abakabu, uh, the people that were helping them find Kurumi in a previous episode, or even like her family, her sister, um, her parents, more on, on that is going to be coming later this episode. But there's these these folks around Ayukawa that, that she uh, introduces Kasuga to, that he gets to kind of rub shoulders with, the people of the disco. Would he have ever gone to a disco without wanting to see Ayukawa there? So she exposes him to a wider world in a literal sense, but then there's also the significance of like a wider world as uh, a window into Kasuga's future, uh, a, a life or a world beyond school, later life as a partner maybe. So he's seeing his future in Ayukawa as well, and that's what this wider world line maybe symbolically signifies. And it's important to this episode as well. I mean, there's some artistic merit here because the idea of considering one's future, particularly with regard to one's future partner, is a primary theme of this episode, right? The Don't Ring the Wedding Bells is the name of the episode. It is the, the primary aspect of the plot. And 
we're going to tie back to, uh, I guess, a daydream or a fantasy that Kosaka has at the very end, in the very last moments and images of this show. But this wider world is going to be visually referenced there at the end of this episode. So, of course, Kosaka misses the relevance of this lecture. He focuses only on Ayuko's absence. And this is, he takes this as like proof that he needs to worry about that phone call because she's not here at school. He assumes she's with the guy that called uh, on the phone at Abakabu, and he might be right. By this point, the rain must have cleared because we get this really kind of striking image at sunset. It's really pretty beautifully rendered with a lot of oranges and reds, but some purples as well. Um, some inversions of some of the colors that you would normally see with it being uh, so close to dusk. And Kasuga and, and Shikaru are, are sitting on a swing set to discuss Ayukawa, Ayukawa's absence. Now, the swings here are, again, deliberate imagery that are used to invoke the idea of youth, of childhood. We swing on swings when we're kids, right? It's a kid's thing. And meanwhile, Ayukawa is off doing adult things, which she's not telling Kasuga or Shikaru about. And they're left there on the swings. This is the, the juxtaposition that's being made in this scene. They're discussing Ayukawa, who's off doing this adult thing, living this adult, mature life. They're still sitting there on the swings like kids. It emphasizes a potential maturity gap between Ayukawa and Shikaru slash Kasuga, which is something that Kasuga is feeling acutely. His head is even hung low. They've animated him sitting there in the swing with his head hung low. He's staring at his knees. And the significance is lost on Shikaru. She just jokes about maybe Ayukawa's found a man. And that just, obviously, that pours more fuel on Kasuga's fire. He's, his concern is a slow burn that ramps up scene after scene in this episode. There's just more kindling added to his fire with, with each scene, and this is, not, this is not an exception to that. Importantly, at the end of the scene, Kasuga demonstrates once again that he's a people pleaser. He actually reassures Shikaru that Aiko's absence is okay, despite not feeling very reassured himself. He nonetheless tries to reassure Shikaru that everything's all right with Ayukawa, and I'm sure there's some, some okay reason for her absence. In the very next scene, we get a dream sequence that Kasuga is having. This is yet another one of his dreams that involves Ayukawa. Shock, guys. There is a very prominent reference to uh, the Brian Nichols film, The Graduate. And Orange Road makes a great many references to American pop culture. In a lot of ways, American pop culture is a tremendous uh export for us for for the US and for for like western culture but then it becomes a tremendous import for other places and uh Japan is one of those places that import these uh, cultural products and it's oftentimes reflected as movies music etc that's popular here and that makes it popular elsewhere as as the the culture sort of that ripple spreads out across the globe from from the US so there are going to be quite a few um, pop culture references. I'll try to point them out where they're important and they have artistic merit. This one, of course, ties into the general theme of the episode. And in fact, it may even be the case that this scene, watching this scene in The Graduate, may have even inspired the filmmakers to construct this episode because the themes really mirror well with uh, some of the the themes in The Graduate. And um, 
and, and they make that reference very, very intentionally here. Uh, this is an example of like a film to film intertextuality. Again, it's very common in Orange Road. Kasuga dreams that he's watching Ayukawa get married from a window at the back of a church. So he can see down on them. He can see the congregation. He can see Ayukawa and he's shouting her name. He's banging on the glass and it's all done in exactly the same fashion as Dustin Hoffman did in his performance as Benjamin in The Graduate. Kasuga is even in the exact same costume worn by Dustin Hoffman. If you uh, take a look at, at what Kasuga's wearing in the dream sequence and then Google images of Dustin Hoffman in the wedding scene at the end of The Graduate, you'll see that they're dressed identically. And again, I mean, animation is a deliberate decision. No one accidentally draws 24 frames per second. So they're intentionally putting Kasuga into the costume that Dustin Hoffman wore as Benjamin in that scene of The Graduate. They intentionally want to speak to viewers who recognize uh, that scene. Now, The Graduate was a nearly 20-year-old film at the time this episode of Orange Road aired. Graduate having been released in December of 1967, this episode was released in June of 1987, so damn near 20-year-old film at the time of this writing, and it was an American film. So despite the fact that it's a classic today, and it probably was considered thus in 1987 as well, I speculate that much of the target demographic for Orange Road would be excused for missing the reference. And I don't think it impacts anyone's enjoyment of the scene. I myself was 14 when I first saw this episode of Orange Road. And at that time, I hadn't the slightest knowledge about The Graduate. It did not impact me from enjoying this episode or understanding what was occurring. It didn't impact my understanding, but it is likely that the filmmakers did include the reference for a minority older audience, perhaps as a, a reference because they themselves watched The Graduate as young people. They may have seen The Graduate at the time it was released or, or during the 70s or, or, or 80s before this episode was produced. And it may even have been an inspiration for this episode and a subtle nod that, that was the inspiration for the general storyline of this episode. Departing from the events of The Graduate, in Casca's dream, the floor cracks open. It it, it um, opens into some kind of sinkhole Casca falls into before he awakens and then sits up and flings poor Jingaro against the wall. Could this have been a foreboding dream? That's a big maybe. It's a big maybe because we're going to see some imagery that does occur in the real world, in the waking world. It's not part of Casca's dream. We are going to see some imagery at the end of this episode that mirrors his dream very, very precisely in, in the exact same way that last episode, uh, Shikaru's quote, death mirrored his dream. This was as premonitory as the dream he had in the previous episode. For this reason, at this point in time of the episode, when he has this dream, there's no reason for him to associate Ayukawa with wedding imagery and marriage. Why would any of that enter into his dream? He doesn't know how right he is about Ayukawa being involved in a wedding, and yet he dreams about it. And so I think that's the power at work. It's working on him um, subtly. He's picking things up very, very uh, subconsciously, and then they're entering into his dream to give him the information that he needs to scare the shit out of him, basically. It motivates him for the rest of this episode. Now, the next day, Costco witnesses even more. Like I said, it's a slow burn. We're adding fuel to his fire with each scene. He's going to witness even more that, that reinforces this ongoing misunderstanding of his. It's, and it's really starting to become understandable that Costco is worried. 
we can make fun of Costco for having so many misunderstandings, but they're really piling it on here. I can't say if I was in Costco's shoes that I would have any different ideas than he does. He gets to school and there's some guy he doesn't know dropping Ayukawa off. Then she fixes his tie to top it off. She's got a ring on on the left ring finger. That's where you typically put an engagement ring. And we see it glisten in the in the sun when she puts her hand up to her to her head to kind of catch her hair as it blows in the wind. We see it glisten in the sun. And it's important that the the filmmakers portrayed that morning as being bright and sunny, right? Because otherwise we wouldn't have that diamond glistening in the sunshine. Casca's presumptions really are becoming understandable here. Now, Komatsu and Hata enter into the episode. They're idiots, right? Not a shock to anybody who's made it this far. But they're useful idiots here. Hata wanting to present himself as a gift to Kurumi is amusing for sure. Um, the the bow, where'd he get that? Komatsu's request that Kasuga give to Kurumi a ring on Komatsu's behalf serves to inform Kasuga that age 16 is marriageable in 1980s Japan. That's important. That's why I say he's a useful idiot because again, that's just another log on Kasuga's fire. It's freaking him out. Now he's even thinking that a person Ayuko's age, roughly Ayuko's age, could get married. It's becoming more and more plausible, this implausible thing that a relatively modern day, or at least modern at the time, she was super modern at, at, in 1987, this modern liberated woman. I mean, she'll kick the ass of anybody that uh, tries to force anything on her. No one's having their way with Ayuka. Well, she's whipping ass. So this is a modern liberated woman who's absolutely not going to be pressured into anything. And yet, all, he's checking all the boxes. He's thinking there's all the evidence is starting to line up and and she could agree to a marriage. And it's becoming more and more plausible that this person might actually be doing something like this and it's just blowing Costco's mind. Uh, there's a little bit of a sexist idea actually that Costco kind of exposes here. And he notices Ayukawa picking up a, a pencil or something for a classmate that had dropped to the floor. And he, he, he notices this and comments that she's like being kinder to people. She's more tender as she she picks this thing up because she's feeling this sense of womanly happiness. I'm putting that in quotes because that's the the exact wording that Kasuga uses, womanly happiness. The idea being that having a man in her life makes her more of a woman and therefore it, it alters her interactions and kind of changes her behavior. It's like saying that she needed a man to be a certain way as if she's incapable of being kind or tender on her own. Like a single woman can't possibly do that. It's like saying that a man is needed to unlock this ultimate happiness in her life. And it's what's kind of unclear to me. I mean, that does, when I, when I frame it that way, it does sound kind of sexist, doesn't it guys? It's unclear if this is a general kind of cultural attitude that's filtering through the narrative here, or if maybe the filmmakers are are making a deliberate decision, it's an artistic decision to include like this little subtle sexism in Kasuga as like a, a social comment or satire, or maybe it's meant to be indicative of Kasuga's relatively immature status. He's 15. He's just learning. And so maybe uh, the idea is that he does have some things to learn about interpersonal relationships and how uh, a relationship can be very fulfilling. As, as a happily married man, I can say a, a relationship is extraordinarily fulfilling, but it's not that um, you need a man or you need a woman. 
you can still do the things and be the person that you want to be. And so this may be something that they're trying to highlight. It's unclear by the end of this episode, whether this is uh, like a social commentary or satire, or if this kind of slipped through and this is just a reflection of kind of a cultural attitude and, um, and like reflects the time and place and is something that we can, we can disagree with today in our modern context. Now, Casca here attempts to use telepathy. This is where we learn that Casca and telepathy are uh, not so good together, right? But you can't say that Casca is completely inept because as he is concentrating, focusing all of his ESP power on Ayukawa, we see this color inversion, which I always thought was a very cool effect. All of the colors invert. Uh, the darker colors become lighter and uh, the bluer colors become more purple. So um, there's this uh, artistic decision made here. It's almost like he's kind of viewing her through this mind's eye that sees her a little differently. But the faint image of a wedding gown begins to appear and it, it begins uh, to appear superimposed over Ayuko as if she's wearing it. And he gets a, a brief flash of her wearing this wedding gown. Uh, then he's interrupted by his teacher. So who knows how far he might've gotten, but it's not nothing. He's not as good at the telepathy as his cousin Kazuya will be, that we'll see later, but it's definitely not nothing. I mean, it's more than I could produce for sure. In our next scene, even Shikaru is talking about marriage. She's so caught up in this housewife fantasy that she has. She's asking Casca if she'll make a good wife. And she's so pleased with herself that Casca is actually able to like sneak away without her noticing, which is, is this is not a Shikaru centric episode. I'm sorry, Jason P. This, this is probably not one of your top episodes being a Shikaru stand, but she does have a few important scenes particularly for uh, fueling, you know, tossing gas on Casca's fire in a few scenes. And her mention of marriage here and how, what kind of housewife she might make sets Casca off. And he actually tries to punk her by sneaking away again and leaving her on the roof again. This is really getting kind of unacceptable, Casca. It's really inexcusable. And when she finds him, she has to make believe he has to make believe that he was going to the bathroom or something like that. And she makes him promise to hurry back. And it's all just like really kind of emasculating, kind of embarrassing for Casca. It's not like he needs her permission, but she's sort of acting like, okay, hurry back. And it's almost like giving him permission. And it really, it's just this, this whole embarrassing thing. And you got to feel it for Kasuga a little bit, but it, it forces really seem to be pushing him with Shikaru. Like he's still this young person on the swings and he can't be with Ayukawa who's off doing this mature stuff because he's not on that level yet. And you even got a, this bouncer in the, in the um, figure of Yusaku who's like, don't you dare skip out on Shikaru. And even though uh, he wants Kasuga and Shikaru to break up. So Kasuga will be all his, I mean, Shikaru will be all his. Um, he, he still wants to like reinforce this. It's almost becoming socially reinforced that he must be with Shikaru when he wants to be with Ayukua. Clearly he's leaving Shikaru on the roof of a building without saying shit to her to go find Ayukua. When he does find Ayukua, he hears her mention a ceremony hall. Again, we get another little log on the fire and he's getting more and more worried. And this is the part that, that, that snaps him. She tells him it's an adult matter. She really could have cut this episode in half by just telling him what's really going on. Like it shouldn't be a secret that she's assisting with a family uh, event like a, her sister's wedding. It's a little weird to me culturally that she's so heavily involved in her sister's wedding where um, 
you know, and I can't comment on the Japanese culture in this regard, but in American culture, we're very invested in our own weddings. And, 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 um, it's, it's a little, so it's a little odd that one would delegate these tasks to someone else, but it's not outside the realm of possibility, but instead of telling them what's really going on, which would be just as easy as saying it's an adult matter, it doesn't serve the plot contrivance. So of course she has to brush it off as an adult matter. This is really like, I understand why Kasuga feels the way he feels. Uh, the audience is being fed the same evidence as Kasuga. And it's clear that they want us to think that perhaps there might be a chance that Aiko is really doing this. This is where it really feels like a plot contrivance because Kasuga very directly straight up asks Ayuko, well, what's, what's going on in your life right now? And he can't get a straight answer. What's the guy supposed to do? Everybody dogs on Kasuga for always being, he's obtuse and he misunderstands things and et cetera, et cetera. But honestly, people ignore instances like this where Kasuga will confront her getting off the phone. He'll, he just wants to know what's going on in her life. And they're friends at this point, at the very least, she ought to be able to tell him something as not private as I'm helping my sister plan her wedding because she's really busy with work. How, how long did it take me to say that? Two seconds, maybe three. And then he would completely understand. Instead, this plot contrivance is occurring here in order to keep his misunderstanding alive. And in fact, to, to, uh, add even more fuel to his misunderstanding and cause this next scene that comes. Thank God she does though, right? Huh? Thank goodness that uh, they keep that plot contrivance going because Casca says, I've made up my mind here. And boy, does he. And we get this song right here that you're hearing. That's Dangerous Triangle by the same gentleman who sings Night of Summerside. That is Mr. Masanori Ikeda. Uh, this is really a great episode for him because he gets the insert music as well. It's epic insert music. I don't, how, I don't understand how you could hear the soundtrack of this show and not absolutely love everything about this show. Unless you hate 80s music and culture, which I would blame you for. I really would. I would hold that against you. It's a great song. So this, the Dangerous Triangle plays as Kasuga makes this desperate attempt to match Ayuko's level of maturity. So as usual, um, Kasuga tries to meet Ayuko where she is. I've mentioned this in the past. Uh, on the rolling first date episode, he dives into the water. He won't let her save the boy. He got to dive into the water because he's trying to rise to her level. He places this expectation on himself, but he wants to be on her level. He wants to get onto her page. He, he wants to be where she's at. And uh, she motivates him to do that. And so he's kind of a better version of himself in, in the first date instance, the rowing for, for rolling first date instance. But here, um, he's, he's a funnier version of himself. She can't stop laughing at him. He comes in in the suit with his hair slicked back. It's like he saw Wall Street. Does anybody know if Wall Street was out? The... the um, Michael Douglas Wall Street. Was that out by by this time in 1987? Could he have possibly been referencing like he saw Wall Street and just thought that's how uh, normal human being adults dress? He comes in with the suit, the tie, the hair slicked back, and it's just hilarious, right? Because it's not a look that jives with, with Kasuga. Again, this is evidence that he's a people pleaser. He's willing to be whatever he thinks she wants, even if it's not really him. 
I've mentioned before that being master is a thankless job. Bunch of teenagers drinking your booze. They only show up to work when it pleases them. They break your dishes when they need to distract Shikaru. And now the guy's stealing your bike and trashing it with his ESP powers. However, we do get to hear after heartbreak again as Casca roars after Ayukawa. This is the moment I mentioned early in the episode where uh, there's a very prominent use of Casca's uh, power here as he uh, propels the bike telepathically. It's now roaring through the streets. It's it's casting these these uh, like flames and sparks like shooting from the bike, and you know his mouth is wide and his eyes are wide, and everything's very cartoonish. This is kind of the most Looney Tunes esque sequence of the entire episode, where everything's kind of this exaggerated art style, and it 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 really helps to communicate this like madcap dash. If if it had stayed realistic, then it, it doesn't enter that level of that territory of comedy. And it doesn't seem as a madcap or insane of a dash. And it really, this this artistic style that's really very cartoonish, and I use that word carefully because it does help to um, reinforce like other styles of animation. I mentioned Looney Tunes as well, where, you know, the eyes get really big and the body jerks around and the wily e. coyote takes a second before he falls and stuff that doesn't really happen in real life but it communicates a a certain thing or a certain feeling and and this does that right this cartoonish comedic sequence is still extremely evocative of this mad dash that Casca makes and what how it might um physically tax him because when he shows up to the church i mean the shirt's untucked the jacket is gone the tie is loose the hair is every which way now we get to see Uma and Ushko here. They're seen as a happy couple. They're on a nice bike ride. Everything's looking good. Saturday afternoon, I don't know what it is, but sun's shining on them and they love each other. It's a beautiful thing. And they are nearly knocked on their asses flat by Casca as he blows past them. And um, this is just one of the instances where Uma and Ushko seem like completely normal, nice, sweet human beings, the exact type of human beings that you'd want to live next to. They're good neighbors. They're kind people. And they're just being tormented and terrorized by these these kids around them, chiefly uh, Casca. And I love that Casca pays them no mind. He almost knocks these two innocent people flat on their faces. They could have lost teeth over this thing, but he doesn't even look back. He doesn't care. He's done it to him before, and he'll do it to him again, I'm telling you. And that that is the Uma Onushko uh, appearances that I love because it reinforces the idea that Casca is like really absorbed in his own shit. He's like in his own world, just like every other teenager is, right? I mean, who at 15 or 16 years old or 14 years old, like these characters all are, who is good at considering uh, the the... A wider society at large and thinking about how their actions impact others. I mean, that's we're all a little bit more self-absorbed than, than typical as teenagers. We're in our own world because we're going through a crazy time in life where we're, we're really going through a lot of changes and we're not noticing this stuff as much. We become so much more selfish in our teens. And this is evidence of that. He just blows past these people. He doesn't care what impact he's having at large on other members of society. He's just trying to get his shit done and who cares who else he disturbs. And I like that these characters are like recurringly almost every episode, like disturbed by the Kasugas, typically Kyosuke, but, but sometimes Kurumi, as we saw in an earlier episode as well. And I, I just, I love that idea. Of course, in future episodes, the Uma and Mishko, uh appearances get 
more madcap. They start being like these crazy characters themselves. And, and, uh, so they're going to evolve, but in these early episodes, it really reinforces the idea that like this teen romance that we're all watching this comedy and stuff, it has these like wider impacts on other people in society, but like these characters don't give a shit and they're not paying any attention. And it's really kind of lovely and funny. Uh, now, Casca's madcap dash is intercut with his recollection of happy memories with him and Ayukawa. We see him meeting Ayukawa, them uh, working together at Abakabu, and they're kind of um, maybe fumbling interactions, but it's all very lovey, and and it's all the stuff that, that Casca's playing in his head. It's not sexy stuff, though. It's Again, he's really valuing Ayukawa, her friendship and, and, and his relationship, and not just like he wants to be physical with her. So this is kind of a beautiful thing of, of Casca's as well, that he really thinks of her first and foremost as this person he values spending time with less than this, this person who's physically attractive to him, has these like um, sexual uh, attraction for him. And we also also cut into this uh, montage are images of Ayukawa in a wedding gown. She's got flowers. She's walking down the aisle. And these images are meant to make us, as the audience, think Casca is right. Uh, Casca's earlier dream is played out here in real life. The minor difference being his costume. He's no longer wearing the same costume as uh, Dustin Hoffman from The Graduate. He's wearing his, his silly suit that's come all untucked and disheveled. But this is where we see that maybe that dream was kind of a premonition. He's banging on the glass. He's looking down at the congregation. He can see Ayukawa in this. She looks like she's getting married. I mean, it's like one I had a teacher that used to say in high school way back, never believe anything you hear and only half of what you see. And I guess this is the half you're not supposed to believe, Kasuga, but he's seeing everything with his eyes. And so it's really understandable, his presumptions, given what he witnesses. We're meant as the audience to identify with him, right? He's our main character. So we are meant to feel that this conflict is legitimate, even when the explanation is so simple and it could have come at any time in the episode, especially at that halfway mark. Casca doesn't even know that Ayukawa has a sister until the very end of the episode, and which is kind of odd. I mean, he's been working with her. I can't believe she wouldn't have just mentioned her sister off the cuff over the course of the past couple of months together. But for some reason, Aiko is doing all the planning work for her sister's wedding. I guess her sister works a lot and maybe doesn't really love the idea of planning a wedding. I'm sure there are folks like that out there, even in American culture, but it would have been easier for her to say. But I actually think that it's not just, I mentioned earlier when we got to the halfway mark of the episode, that it was a plot contrivance. It was meant to keep this misunderstanding going because the plot hinges on Casca's misunderstanding. Nothing happens in this episode if Casca doesn't misunderstand these clues that he's been given. It's so understandable what Casca concludes from the information that he's he gathers that I actually believe that it's not just a plot contrivance. My belief here that I will posit to you is that Ayukawa may have been intentionally cryptic throughout this episode to elicit just this response in Kasuga. It's really the, 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 the best explanation in my mind for why she wouldn't just tell him at the halfway point what was going on. It's the best reason for her to be cryptic. She knows how the adult shit, child shit, kid shit affects Kasuga. He, she understands his insecurities after the uh, spark-colored first kiss episode. And her expression here, I mean, they actually animate her face. Her expression softens. She smiles a little bit more. Her eyes get a little softer. She smiles. And it, it's ever so briefly in Avocado at the very tail end of this episode as she's watching Casca breathe this sigh of relief. And that 
piece of animation. It only, it only lasts one or two seconds, but I will accept that from the filmmakers as a yes, I am right about my personal hypothesis here. And the episode actually ends, it could have ended there with that sigh of relief on Casca's part, but Casca reminds the viewer that if the day ever comes that Ayukawa is to get married, that he wants to be the one by her side. And it ends as he's delivering that voiceover, it ends with the imagery returning to the graduate. We, he resumes this earlier I- imagery from the graduate as he and Ayukawa run away from a church. They hurriedly board a bus, uh, almost as if they just got married, but they, you know, in the graduate, that's not what happened. You know, they were running away from, from her wedding, uh, which he was not involved in. And Casca's back in costume as Ben, and he's even wearing his t- clothing torn, exactly as seen at the end of the graduate. Uh, without context, there's no reason we don't see the the scuffle that results in Casca's torn clothing like we do see it in the graduate for Ben's clothing. Um, but again, we're going, we're returning back to this very deliberate uh, reference to the very overt reference to the graduate. And um, in a key difference from the ending of the graduate, we see that unlike Ben and Elaine, whose smile famously uh, fade as they realize what they've done. Casca and Ayukua maintain this blissful, happy expression as the bus rolls away. They look like they're good together. And I know it's just occurring in Casca's imagination, so of course it's going to look like they're good together. Casca's imagining how happy they would be if the day ever comes, but it's, it's a really nice kind of blissful way to end the episode. It's a really great way to kind of put a period at that, and we'll move on to the next episode. But before... Before we end here today, I'd like to remind you that I am a member of the Inner Circle Podcast Network. We've got other podcasts, guys. I mean, this one's shy of an hour most weeks, and uh, you know, there's more time than that. You might want to listen to podcasts. Please check out innercirclepn.com for the other Inner Circle Podcast Network podcasts. If you would like to listen to my other podcast, Shit Happens When You Party Naked, I would love you very, very much, maybe even physically. If you would go listen to Shit Happens When You Party Naked, unfortunately, uh, it is a comedy podcast. That's fortunately. Unfortunately, I moved it over to Patreon because it was just offending too many people in real life. And so um, you you must subscribe in order to hear Shit Happens When You Party Naked. Team Almy uh, Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Team Almy. Uh, but I will also send you free merch, as I do, for all tiers. So you're going to get something from me uh, in addition to access to Shit Happens When You Party Naked, all the live streams, as well as the audio versions of the episode. Uh, I hope that you'll find it funny. It's probably a bit more offensive than what I've recorded here today. But if you enjoy my humor at all throughout this episode, uh, you'll get it dialed up to a 10 with Shit Happens When You Party Naked. Also, Team Almy Studios Patreon is going to start having some Orange Road uh, extra bonus material very, very soon, guys, this summer. This is the... Orange Road Summer, I guess. So we're going to do it. Uh, Thank you guys again for listening to this episode. I really appreciate you very, very much. And uh, in honor of Ikeda Masanori, since he gave us that beautiful, beautiful um, insert song, I'm just going to play the rest of that.
Yeah.